From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. In a recent two-year period, China poured more concrete than the United States did in all of the 20th century. The driver was texting um, at the time of impact. So Karen Tools and Kerry, you were born in Cork. Cork are claiming you, but you're a Kerry woman. Yeah, definitely. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the history of the second most widely used substance on the planet, the devastating consequences of texting while driving, and the 14-year-old who climbed Ireland's highest mountain 100 times. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show. That's a little bit out of breath going up them steps. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show started with a non-fiction book that Ryan picked up recently. And I wasn't sure what I'd be into, but it was recommended um, over Christmas. Someone said, I think you'd really like this book. I said, go on. The Fall of Boris Johnson. It's all right. A bit um, quick. We'll have a look. Uh, Sebastian Payne, journalist, wrote the book. It's a bit rushed, you can tell that in the writing, but uh, or the editing, I should say, but that's okay, it doesn't take away from it, but it's a cracker. Yeah, it's a cracker for read. Uh, and thankfully, it doesn't go all covid so it's not that kind of grim sort of read. It's just salacious and gossipy, that, that real political uh, backroom sort of uh, shenanigan that you, uh, the political anoraks will love. I think you'd want to be pretty much into your, the politics. But like, all politics are really um, modern Ancient Rome, just without the togas. Yeah, everyone's, it's skullduggery, unpleasant, and a lot of backbiting. And and yet, there's uh, some goodness that shines through uh, a little bit, but not, not hugely with Boris Johnson. And uh, one uh, mistake after another, one lie after another, it's extraordinary. And it's only at 250, 60 pages, so it's not this big dorsal of a, of a tome, which is great. So thank you to Joanne Byrne, who kindly suggested that to me uh, one evening uh, when we bumped into her when we were out having a few scoops with the radio team. Yes, that's right. Do you remember that time? Yes. Sounds it feels like 400 years ago, but it was actually quite recently. Anyway, The Fall of Boris Johnson by Sebastian Payne for political anoraks, anoraks comes with a thumbs up approval, having finished it this morning, cover to cover. The rolling tubberty book review with a thumbs up there. But what about the film review section? Well, we've got that for you too. The movie I watched, I forgot to mention it to you yesterday over the weekend, was The Menu. Have you seen The Menu with Rafe Fiennes um, and the ever-watchable, compellingly watchable Anya Taylor-Joy? No, I know it, but I think you know, they, give me the, they give me the eyes up to heaven there going, no, I'm just saying, she, everything I see her in, she's always brilliant. Anyway, uh, The Menu uh, is, it's, it's weird, okay, uh, and... Do you know what I thought uh, Ray finds channeling his inner Willy Wonka? Now, the, you know, he had that, that kind, of, uh, kind of weird, psychotic uh, chef. I thought it was who, who runs this outrageously, outrageously exclusive restaurant on an island. And it's almost got that Agatha Christie. Everyone has to go to the island for dinner and they all have a story. And he's there delivering this, these, this meal. My idea of hell, six courses of you know works of art on a plate nothing to eat of course and uh, bar one meal at the end which I absolutely adored which will all become apparent when you see it thanks Anya but the point of it is did I like it yes I did was it quirky yes will half of you hate it yes you will and will half of you really like it yes if you've ever worked in a kitchen or in a restaurant as I have done uh, whether it's as a waiter or a chef or a commie chef or sous chef or anything or if you're really into your food you'll like this film it's on Disney uh, if, you're, if you're a subscriber it's called The Menu and that comes with a qualified 
recommendation. Two recommendations in one show. The form is good this week, obviously. But let's have at least one oddball story, shall we? A West End actress, meanwhile, is campaigning to change the law. Did you know, is this, can we find out, is this the same in Ireland? She changed, wants to change the law so that people, motorists, who run over cats, cats are required to report it to the authorities. At the moment, if you hit a cat, you don't have to report it. That's, that's the way in the UK. So she, she had a cat, um, when, uh, but he died after his fourth birthday when he was run over. And in the UK, people are required to tell the police if they drive into dogs, if they hit a horse, if they hit a cow, if they hit a pig, if they hit a goat, if they hit a sheep, if they hit a donkey, if they hit a mule, but not a cat. <laughs> what an odd law. What an odd omission. And uh, they secured a, uh, a Westminster Hall debate after a petition she launched was signed by, wait for it, 102,000 people. People love their cats, their feline friends. Of course they do. Uh, but Department of Transport spokesperson in London said, having a law making it a requirement to report road accidents involving cats would be very difficult to enforce. And we have reservations about the difference it would make to the behaviour of drivers who are aware that they have to, that they've run over a cat and do not report it. Odd story there from the uh, from the sidelines. I thought. Do you want to give us the name of the West End actress? No. Oh, okay then. Let's move on. If you haven't read Animal Farm, well, what have you been doing with your life? George Orwell. I mean, if you haven't read Animal Farm uh, in your life, can I urge you to pick it up and have a look at it? It's a very slim um, uh, novel. Uh, it's one of my favourites. And a first edition Ukrainian language copy of Animal Farm is set to go on sale to raise money for a charity supporting refugees who fled the Russian invasion. The Ukrainian translation of the seminal satire of the Russian Revolution was the only one to feature a foreword from Orwell, written at the behest of his publisher, who felt the author should introduce himself to the edition's intended audience of Ukrainians uh, displaced by the Second World War. The copy of the book from 1947 also dubbed the Refugee Camp Edition, is now set to be sold in London and may accept, uh, heading for about €2,000. And it covers how easily totalitarian propaganda can control the opinion of enlightened people in democratic countries and the negative influence of the Soviet myth upon the Western socialist movement. And it is, uh, it's, a, it's a great, remember Disney, I think Disney did a cartoon version of Animal Farm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's somebody did and it was very good interpretation of the original book Mr. Clark uh, was my teacher in second year when we did this book and he taught it this is why part of the reason I love teachers so much when you get the right one he taught it so well and it, that it got into my bloodstream the story of Animal Farm and how every you know depending on your politics that you think every every pig wants to become a farmer ultimately but no it was Hallis and Bachelor is that the name of the, the firm that made the cartoon it had the, the Disney feel to it but yeah, that's from 1954. But anyway, Animal Farm, what a, what a great book. I'd, I'd nearly revisited it. Uh, so Box of the Cart Horse and Squealer the Pig, all that. Yeah, well worth a look. OK, if you're not going to read Animal Farm, at least you could do some mountain climbing like young Orla Kelly. Congratulations to Orla Kelly. Why? Because according to Cork Bio, she has climbed Karen Tuchel 100 times. She is currently 14 years old. <laughs> that is... Outrageous. Outrageous in a great way. Uh, I, 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 I'm nearly 50 and I've climbed Karen Tool a grand total of once. But I loved it. Thanks to Madeleine Morris. I'll never forget it. I was even thinking of 
maybe giving it another go, actually, uh, between now and, and to the end of the late, late run, for some weird reason, I think I might. Um, so 14-year-old Orla Kelly has always had a passion for mountain climbing and took on Karen Toole for the first time with her dad when she was only nine. Her parents are Pierce and Catherine and they run Kerry Climbing. And she's gone up and down and the other day she went up for her hundredth time. She took one of the hardest routes which hit the curved gully. And uh, I just think that's, that's uh, what, a, what a great achievement for her. Well done. That was one of my favourite things I ever did. It was torture, but it was kind of worth it I've always, I look back I remember going home and I remember making I, I, I drove home the, that night for some weird reason this must be some sort of post-mountain mania and I had a cup of tea probably about six fig rolls Epsom salt bath hit bed and I think it was the nicest sleep I ever had in my whole entire life it was so natural it was so lovely I remember waking up thinking I think I've been to Valhalla I think I know what it, what it means now to be in heaven. It was so lovely. And I'd nearly climb it again to get that sleep. That's what I'd nearly do. Nearly. I know the nearly feeling. Or do I know the feeling nearly? Anyway. Finally, on the newsings this morning, Ryan had some words to say about Aslan lead singer Christy Dignam after reports yesterday that he's receiving palliative care at home. I've been interviewing and talking to Christy for so many years now. And he's been quite unwell for a long time and yet always uh, managed to fight back and rise to the occasion and always showed up and not only showed up but he, he gave everything and ha- continues to give everything he has but on the TV show he always gave everything he had last time I seem to recall he was on was with the Ukrainian the war just breaking out about a year ago and he was just uh, with the with with Billy and, and the band and Aslan and he was just so uh strong on the Ukraine situation and music and he every time he comes on he always does something beautiful for us and uh, as uh, let me read an email from Noel in Dallas which came in overnight saying terribly sad news on Christy Dignam who is as if you didn't hear he's he's at home with his family the most important people in his life uh, receiving palliative care Uh, terribly sad news on Christy says Noel I recall a beautiful collaboration between Christie and Finbar Fury singing a few bars of the green fields of France on the late, late in 2017 when Christie was clearly weak. God love him. You seemed moved and captivated, Ryan, watching two musical legends uh, while performing in a full RT studio could have as easily been sitting in the corner lamenting in any pub in Ireland. The outcome would have been the same. So many thanks to you and the entire RT production team as you continue to capture these amazing, touching moments in time that will undoubtedly serve to become jewels in the library for future generations to watch and admire, giving us the chance to witness amazing talent such as Christy doing what he does best. And, you know, I posted a a picture up on Instagram last night to wish Christy well and his family. And the response was just so, if I could pass on that even now and tell you, tell his family if they happen to be listening the response was so warm and so loving um, and so sentimentally engaged in a good way with with him uh, that there's a lot of wind in a sail coming from people in Ireland today I think there's no doubt about that Um, and uh, the other says uh, Aslan's last gig with Christy was in the Ballykeefe Amphitheatre in County Kilkenny it was an emotional night and the crowd carried Christy to the last note uh, on the night well 
Here's hoping he's in good fettle this morning um, at home, as I say, with his uh, loved ones. Ryan sending good wishes to Christy Dignam, who's at home with his family on this morning's Brian Toberty Show. Now, how about this for a stat? After water, concrete is the most widely used substance on the planet. That remarkable little factoid came up on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne when Claire was joined by physicist at the UCD School of Education, Dr Shane Bergen, to talk about the unexpectedly interesting history of concrete. I think that if if something were to happen, if every human on, on the planet were suddenly removed and aliens were to come and think, what, what, what are these guys about? It would be the concrete uh, society they would see. It wouldn't be silicon chips or anything like uh, metal like that. It would be the fact that our built environment is made out of concrete and there is so much of it. As you said, after water, it's the second most widely used substance on Earth and it is such a simple thing. It's and it's Sand, gravel and water. I mean, it doesn't sound that wondrous, but you say it is. We have to add one magic, uh, one more magic ingredient, that is cement, right? And so that that is the thing. We've turned that into, into a verb. It's cement those other things together. So when you when you take cement, which is limestone and clay, so things you dig up from the ground and you burn them at very hot temperatures, you're able to make cement. And when you mix that with water, it causes a chemical reaction. And that um, it, within it, 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 it forms these really strong bonds. So it turns into a very hard material. And if you mix that with gravel or sand, which is basically bulking it up, you're able to turn this into an incredibly strong material that is very durable. It'll last, right? So we still have concrete from the Roman times. Um, it's fire retardant. So it is, it is an ideal building material. I mean, think of the raw ingredients for it. You can just go dig them up. There probably isn't a country in the world that couldn't make concrete. Isn't that remarkable? You mentioned the Romans and clearly they show us and they demonstrate that concrete lasts the test of time. They Did they have the best recipe for concrete? <laughs> and we're still figuring it out. Imagine 2,000 years later, we're still trying to figure out what the Romans did. So when we ask what do they ever do from us, for us, concrete is certainly one of those things. Um, what, what they did was they mixed a version of cement with sand, gravel and water and they they used volcanic ash instead, right? So they would have, of course, had volcanoes in, in, in Roman Italy that they were able to use the clay from there. And they used seawater. And um, we, we've known there was a slightly different chemistry involved there, but we've also recently figured that they mixed their concrete in a different way to the way we mix concrete. So it's not just the raw ingredients, it's how you put them together. So it's like baking a cake. If you put the eggs in first, you mightn't get the same sort of cake mm-hmm. out at the end. And that's exactly the same when it comes to making concrete. So people that visit um, ancient Roman sites would see aqueducts. If you go to Rome, you'd see the Colosseum. You would see uh, the Pantheon, that beautiful building in the heart of of Rome that still has a dome in the centre of it that's entirely made out of uh, concrete. And that concrete's not reinforced. So nowadays when we build a concrete, we add steel to it to make it even stronger. And that's allowed us to build skyscrapers and, and the likes. But the Romans didn't use steel because they didn't have it. 
but they still were able to make um, uh, concrete structures. Because concrete flows when you mix it at the start, you can, t- you can al- ask it to make any shape you want, which is another really important aspect of this fantastic material. Which you said earlier when you were talking about, you know, how it comes together, you <coughs> spoke about the burning of the clay and the limestone. So we've talked about the benefits, but the benefits can sometimes mask the huge environmental impact of concrete. I know. Yeah, here's another one, right, to add to the list. But it is something we have to think about. If the cement industry were a country, it would be the third largest carbon dioxide emitter in the world, right? Uh, The industry accounts for 8% of global CO2 emissions um, because of this burning that has to take uh, place to create cement. So you have to take limestone and clay, you have to heat it to an incredible 1400 degrees. It's like firing something in a kiln. Um, and the emissions are really substantial because of the amount of concrete that we use. A 2022 report showed that in, in Ireland, Dublin Airport is the number one single emitter of carbon dioxide in Ireland. We don't hear that much, right? But numbers two, three and five are cement factories. Right. I haven't heard much discussion um, really in the public sphere about it. We talk Mm -hmm. about sectors as a whole, which when you add up all the individual bits, they are huge. But the cement industry is a whopper when it comes to, to carbon dioxide emissions. And so, you know, we have to think about, well, if we're going to build lots of things, which we need to do, homes and schools and factories, etc. How do we balance that with the fact that the material is contributing to climate change? And it's a tricky one. So, so is that being examined then to try and find a way to make concrete in a more sustainable way? Yeah, so there's there's two options there. You can either make concrete in a more sustainable way and, and it's still concrete or you can use alternatives to concrete, right? So um, like the, the first one, right? How would we make concrete in a more sustainable way? Well, you have to change the raw ingredients, right? So one one solution is instead of digging up clay from the ground, right, and heating it in a kiln, um, that you can you can use other materials, right? So you can use kind of byproducts from digging up coal or indeed from the steel industry. And they're slightly better uh, when it comes to, to carbon dioxide emissions. We're also looking at, instead of sort of burning it and using fossil fuels to, to burn the clay, you could perhaps heat it up with electricity that could be generated in a sustainable way. So wind turbines make electricity, which... Uh, create cement and you know that that then in turn is more sustainable concrete and an alternative is um, and industries are actually looking into this right because like there's so much of it all the plastic produced over the last 60 years amounts to about 8 billion tonnes and we'll make that in cement every two years right so we're accelerating our use in a recent two-year period, China poured more concrete than the United States did in all of the 20th century. So it's not like we're not on a road to reducing here. We're, because it's really cheap and really plentiful, we're, we're just making this stuff at, at a rate of knots. And as the world becomes more middle class and industrialised, we're going to be making more and more. So we really do need to pay attention to how we can do it more sustainably um, and how we can find alternatives. Dr. Shane Bergen, physicist at the UCD School of Education, talking to Claire Byrne about the history and future of concrete. Sinead contacted Liveline and spoke to Joe Duffy this afternoon about an appalling incident that happened to her daughter. We live in um, an absolute nightmare. Um, Three years ago in March, Mm. um, my daughter... And her best friend went for a walk. Yeah. 
Um, it was a beautiful evening and it was a gorgeous sunset and they went to take photographs of the sunset. Yeah. And an hour after they left, I got a phone call from my daughter and she was hysterical on the phone. And they had been hit by a jeep. And um, my daughter's best friend, Ifa, um, was killed instantly. She was thrown into a drain. Um, my my daughter stood up from. She got up from the road. She had been. She was thrown kind of onto the grass verge, and yeah. she stood up and she saw Ifa's shoes and socks on the side of the road. And she ran to look for her. And she found her in the drain and she knew she was in trouble. So she had to get out onto the road and start, um, you know, to, to try and get cars to stop. Yeah. Because the driver initially had, had driven away. He did come back. I'm not saying he didn't come back. He did. But, but he, initially try, yeah. he, he had driven away. So um, when she called me and when I got there, a man and woman had stopped and they were performing CPR in Isa. But unfortunately, um, she was killed instantly. And the driver was texting um, at the time of impact. Mm-hmm. And Joe has to stop. I go down the town every day, and every day you see somebody, and people in cars, people in lorries, people in vans, yeah. texting. Like, what's wrong with them? It has to stop. You know, we're devastated. Aoife's parents are living a nightmare. Her family on both sides. Our family. My daughter is destroyed. I'm destroyed. My family's destroyed. We've lost. Aoife was like a member of our family. We've known her since she was a baby. And people just don't get it. They have to stop. I don't understand, like, how... You're looking at your phone. If you look at your phone, you're you're distracting yourself from the road. You're not you're not concentrating on what you're doing. You're not going to see what's in front of you. You're going to lose control of your car. You know you have to think about other pedestrians, other drivers, other people. Like this is, as I said, it's coming on three years, and it feels like yesterday. The heartache and the pain, it doesn't go away. And unless you're in the boat, unless you've got the phone call, unless you've, people, you know, you've got that knock on your door, when you lose a child or anybody in these circumstances, it's heartbreaking. And the the, the driver, Eric Dunn, he was 24, he was an unaccompanied learner driver as well. Um, yes. Did he Did he say why he drove off? Um, he did. He didn't. I, in the court, like I, I think he just he didn't realize. He said he didn't know he, he hit anything. He didn't know what had happened. He didn't see anything. You're not going to see something when your head is stuck in your phone. I'm sorry, but you know. So he didn't. He he obviously realized. I mean, you're you're, you're not going to hit a child and not realize you've hit something. You know. So he did come back, but. He, um, he left my daughter long enough to have to get up off the ground and go running to look for her friend and, and to um, have to call for help, you know. And Eric Dunn was, was sent to prison. 
he yeah. was, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's out now, is he? He's out. He is indeed, yeah. 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 Um, a year given, after the accident, we had the court case, and yeah. um, he, he did about 18 months. And he pleaded guilty to dangerous driving cars. He did indeed, yes. Yeah. And Aoife was only, like your daughter was only 14 at the time. 14 at the time, yes. Yeah. Um, How is is Cara? She's not. She's, look, she's a beautiful 17-year-old now. Yeah. But her heart's broken. Um, You know, she's, she's, no concentration levels in school. Um, her, her schooling is, you know, she's down to like, you yeah. know, five subjects for her leaving cert. And the school is very good to her. Um, They're very understanding of the circumstances. But Cara finds it very difficult. She doesn't really get very much sleep. She mm. suffers from awful headaches, um, PTSD, um, nightmares. Um. Like a lot of time we're here and uh, every night, every night she walks the corridors up and down in, in, in the kitchen. Like it's all the time. It doesn't go away, Joe. Like, I mean, it's every morning when you wake up. It's every night before you close your eyes. It's all you see and it, it's every day. And even though it's going on, as I said, three years, it doesn't feel like three years. Like it feels like last week. Mm-hmm. The pain... The heartbreak, the trauma, it doesn't stop. The devastating consequences of drivers texting while on the road described in heartbreaking detail by Sinead to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline. Irish Times journalist Jennifer Bray joined Ryan Toberley this morning to talk about what seems like a rising tide of abuse against politicians, something Jennifer wrote about at the weekend. So the idea for this piece was spurred on after the incident at the public meeting in Gort where there were two bags of cow dung flung uh, towards uh, Fianna Fáil politician Anne Rabbit and the Fine Gael politician Karen Cannon. And immediately afterwards there was this debate uh, about uh, politician safety and about their, you know, their, their general safety both online and in person. And this advice went out to TDs this day last week or, or Monday last week, which basically told them, you know, uh, you can wear more comfortable shoes uh, or maybe perhaps you can um, angle yourself differently when you visit people's doors. And I noticed uh, talking to TDs, uh, female TDs in particular, that they were outraged at this advice. They were kind of saying, you know, what's the point of this? This isn't good enough, given what we're actually facing. And what I really noticed was, um, on foot of that advice, male TDs saying to me, oh, it's not that bad. You know, it's 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 OK. We get it here and there and now and then, but we still do our constituency clinics. You know, we still go out and about, etc. And what was the nature of, why were they being advised to wear sensible shoes or what have In you? In case they needed to make a quick getaway, effectively, if they needed to run away. So yeah. the, 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 we're talking about uh, abuse. Yeah. F- uh, physical, sometimes verbal, sometimes online, nearly yeah. always. And yeah. this advice, what what triggered that advice to be issued in the first instance? I think it was, it had been issued before and I think it was this time on foot of what had happened in Gort and kind okay, of politicians saying, you know. Okay, because of that, saying, they said be know, careful, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this advice went out and I did notice, like I said, the divide between male TDs and female TDs. Mm. So I kind of thought that was interesting and I, I kind of went to a lot of the female TDs and said, listen, 
you know, why don't you tell me the extent of it? Tell me how bad it actually is um, off the record because they didn't want to talk about it on the record. Um, and a large number of TDs came back to us. Um, f- around seven TDs I interviewed kind of fully. Uh, around five of those kind of gave me copies of emails, voice notes, um, messages on Instagram, messages on Twitter, um, emails between them and Facebook, mm-hmm. conversations with them and the Gardaí. Um, and and this is how the piece kind of was, that's where it came out yeah. of effectively. Um, and I have to say, I knew it was bad for female TDs because, you know, you'd hear stuff working as a political correspondent, just chatting to people really. Um, but the extent of it, I genuinely was shocked. And at one point, sick to my stomach. What made you sick to your stomach, for example? Um, I there mean... was this one letter that was sent to a female TD. She's very well known. Um, she's tough, you know. And the letter basically was a really detailed description of explicit sexual acts that the author wanted to do to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it started by, I follow your politics, um, you have a nice little body, and then the rest of it is... Just vile. Vile. Yeah, and... Vile, like, and... And, and psych- not psychotic, but sort of certainly mm. menacing in, in the extreme, by extreme, the sounds of it. Extremely menacing. And this same female TD then told me that at one point, you know, she, uh, you know, it, they're all anonymous, so I won't, I can't say, you know, where they live or a constituency or anything yeah, like that or what the parties they're in. But she lives in an area where they're not, there's not too many other people around and that could be anybody realistically in, in the, uh, outside of Dublin. Mm. Um... And she was getting messages from somebody just kind of harassing her. And then one day she got a message saying, God, you look even better in real life. And it kind of spooked her. And she was in her home. She said she, you know, used to be in a position where she wouldn't have locks on her doors. She would be very, you know, always felt safe in her community effectively. And then she found out that this person was camping in a field nearby watching her um, uh, through the windows. And she... It, it terrified her. It scared her. It scared her for her life. He turned up at the door then. Um, she told him to get off the property. And then he turned up again with flowers, apologising. But realistically, he just wanted to turn up on her door again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, That's this... It's a different level, isn't it? It's I mean, a different uh, level. Online yeah. is one thing. You talk about somebody else had, who was saying that, you know, I have your poster up in my bedroom um, or something. What, yeah, what was that one? saying I have a, a picture of you up on my wall and I'm not going to say... The details, but it was defiled. Put it that way. I think we all know what that means. Let's oh, we face do, it. yeah. Because at this point of the morning, we have to say we're all adults here, and True. I think that if we sanitize this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, no one really wins necessarily because mm. we need to kind of get inside the minds of both the perpetrator and the victim here. Absolutely. So that this person would have a picture of a female TD close close by, and it's defiled by him. Uh, Masturbating onto it. Well, that's what, exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And, and he tells her this. And he, he tells, tells her, her other things. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, this... It, I wish I could say that that was just one of the examples. And, and yes, it was one of the worst, but this was common. And I was really shocked when one female TD said to me, oh, the usual. That's the usual. Um, and the reasons why they gave for not talking on the record, I thought were really interesting. So firstly... They were worried that if they talked on the record, it would bring more of it upon themselves when they felt they're a breaking point. Um, secondly, they were really worried. People always say politicians have to have a thick skin um, and that they basically, you know, you're not cut out for it. You know, you can't handle the heat. Get out of the kitchen. Which, funnily enough, after my article went out, someone actually said online. So there you go. Said said to about politicians. In response to, yeah, to of course the article. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and there was that reason. So there was a couple of different reasons. They were afraid that their colleagues would be like, oh, you know, 
is it really that bad? Um, and this is all exculpatory stuff to yes. say, you know, yes. don't worry about it. Uh, if, if you're not able for, it's actually not, it's actually victim blaming. It's not what they're shaming oh, yeah. almost. Yeah. They're not, it's not the guy who with the poster. Uh, it's not the guy in, in uh, camping in the field. Um, it's actually you for not having a, a neck hard enough. Mm-hmm. And then you're called a politician. You're, you've got some neck. You've got, what do you I want? know, you can't win, <laughs> exactly. And then you say, we want more women in politics and then women go into politics and they get subject to this. And that was the third reason they gave, um, which kind of chilled me at one point because one of the women I talked to said, I publicly say, I want to see more women in politics. Um but privately, I'm telling you, she said to me, you would want to be out of your mind to go into politics That's as so a woman. depressing. And this particular TD, I mean, you really would see her everywhere and you'd think nothing would get her down. And I was shocked to hear her say that. Why would she? she I heard the word dehumanise you write about. Yeah. yeah, she said, you're just completely and utterly dehumanised. Um, uh, and that's, that's part of the problem is the dehumanisation of, of politicians. And I'm not here to defend politicians, you know, I'm not their, you know, guardian angel or anything like this. I'm actually just... On the contrary, actually. On the contrary, I'm a right pain in the side for them. day to day. Yeah, so it's just... But at the same time, like, when you hear these things, especially as a female, you know, working in politics and political journalism, I know how hard it is for female journalists and I know how hard it is for female politicians. Jennifer Bray, Irish Times journalist, talking to Ryan Toberty this morning about the disturbing rise in instances of abuse against politicians particularly women. Some schools in disadvantaged areas are using play therapy to help children deal with trauma in their lives. Claire Byrne was joined this morning by Roisin Hickey, Principal of Our Lady of Victories Boys National School and Chair of the Ballymont Schools Network, and also by Neve Mullins, Child Psychotherapist and Play Therapist, to discuss the benefits of play therapy. Niamh started off by describing just what exactly play therapy is. Play therapy um, is a form of therapy or counselling for children. And it's the same as adult therapy, um, is except for adults use words and children use play. So we, are, we often know the um, therapeutic benefits even for adults. You know, when they want to express their emotions without using words, like, you know, we'll listen to music or we'll play music or um, dance. And we know that that's a way that we can express ourselves without using words. And children use play uh, to express themselves. And it's hugely powerful and therapeutic. Okay, and I was just interested to read, when you're doing play therapy, you put the toys out in the same order every time. What's the thinking behind that? So the reason we put the toys out in the same order is because it's predictable for the children and they know that every time they come into the room they're not wasting time trying to find the toys. So in a playroom, in a therapy room you would have um, all these little miniature figures, you would have sand um, for children to play with and we'd also have art and um, puppets and sometimes we'd have games as well, especially for the older children. So that's that's the reason is, behind is it a very long and slow process, Neve? Because your intervention, I would imagine, is limited in terms of asking that child why they've decided to do what they're doing with the toys or play what they're play with what they've decided to play with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the thing is, you know, I'm a non-directive play therapist, which means I follow the child's lead. And when I meet parents for the first time, I tell them that, you know, I use a diagram that uh, shows parents that the working phase of play therapy and then the empowerment phase of play therapy. And we don't know um, how long each phase is going to last. You know, the same way that if you were going to therapy, you don't know how long 
it would last. You know, so children come in and they um, go through their issues bit by bit, the same way as if an adult was going to therapy and they were having difficulties with, say, family members. You wouldn't go in and start talking about all your family members all at the same time and expect it all to be, you know, resolved straight away. You'd come in and you maybe talk about one family member and you'd resolve that um, and you'd, you know, process your emotions around that. You gain new perspective and then you think to yourself, wow, that was fantastic. I'm going to talk about somebody else now. And mm-hmm. it's the same for children. They come in and they go through their issues one by one. All right, let's uh, bring in Roisin here. <clears throat> and Roisin, play therapy is in 30 or 36 children have benefited in seven of the 11 primary schools where you are in Ballymun, including your own school. Why is it so important? Hi, Claire. Um, uh, well, I thought we find it just to be uh, a fantastic approach to dealing with um, barriers to education. From the point of view of a teacher and a principal, we have all these beautiful people sitting in front of us every morning and our job is to teach them. But we know that they are not often available for learning when they sit down in front of us every day. We know mm-hmm. that leaving the issues that they, they leave behind when they walk in the door of the school every morning, it's not possible if we had a learning difficulty, if we had a specific learning difficulty, let's say, for example, dyslexia, we know that we have strategies as teachers to help to access education for them. Or if you had a physical disability, if you had a hearing impairment, we would find, um, you know, uh, equipment that would help you. We need to find, and we have found, we believe, something that is really going to help children to access education if they have a barrier to learning that is emotional or psychological, which has resulted from a trauma or, you know, from any type of difficulty that they have experienced, any adverse childhood experience. So explain to us uh, what those experiences are and what kind of behaviour that leads to then, Roisin, that would then send you down the road of recommending play therapy. Um, well, I saw some of the experiences. There's such a wide variety. Of, you mentioned them there in the in the opening, uh, Claire. What we would see a huge amount of here, and this is the reason that we came together as a group, and that's how I, I, I met Neve in the very beginning, was through the homelessness crisis. And that is obviously in a massive trauma and an adverse experience for any child who has experienced it. But we would have a, a multitude of different reasons why a child would, would come to school in you know um, experiencing trauma. There's bereavement, there's domestic abuse, family separation, addiction, um, experiences relating to crime. There are just so many. And it's very hard to pinpoint, you know, a specific behaviour. But they, they range from a child who we know to, I suppose, is, is identifiable and people would often, you know, experience this or they might perceive this to be very, very common, which is explosive behaviour or angry behaviour or really bold in the class. And that absolutely happens. But it, it goes all the way from there down to very low mood, a child who is, you know, deliberately withdrawing themselves from their peers, withdrawing themselves from their their teacher who just can't hear they're just almost you know there's an emptiness or there is a low mood there um so yeah that th- those would be i suppose what we would see here and how do the parents respond then when you suggest that play therapy might help their child um, in general, absolutely fantastically. Okay, so I, I, my experience of it here is that every parent wants the absolute best for their child. And it's, it certainly isn't news to a parent to know that their child is experiencing a difficulty in gaining, you know, get, getting to their potential. You know, you've made loads of bright kids and, and 
all children have a potential and they can't access it. And mum and, and dad know that. So if I were to say to a parent, listen, you know, we feel they're experiencing something. Is there something that you think might have happened? What would you think to a therapeutic approach? They're, in all honesty, they're either Im- immediately really positive about it or sometimes it takes a little bit of thought. Sometimes they might have to consider it. Um, but almost always somebody will come back and say, OK, yeah, this is something I think we really need to explore. I want the best for my child. And I'm, they're usually so, so pleased that they feel we can help, you know. Yes, and, then, and sometimes and we're the only agency that can help because waiting lists are so extremely long. Yeah, and, and teachers are often the only ones who see the problems because you spend so much time with the child every single Absolutely. day. Absolutely. And, and we're really trusted by the children because it's not just a really quick experience where you run in and out of the dentist or you run in and out and you see, you know, a, a clinician, you know, sporadically. These these little people are in front of us every day for five and a half hours. So they know them. They know they can trust them. They know how they react. They know they're going to be cool, calm and collected. And they, they often were the first port of call when they are experiencing something and they feel they can tell us that something has happened. So Neve, where do you start then once the parents are on board, the teacher's on board, the child is in front of you. Where do you begin? So I would usually um, have an intake session with the parents. So the parents will come in to me after having spoken to the principal and agree that they're going to come to play therapy. So I will have the parents in front of me and I'll explain the whole play therapy process with them. And the really important thing as well is to get the background information of the parent to find out the difficulties that the child is having. And then I, it's always really important to get um, therapeutic goals as well. So what they would look like would be, you know, you know, maybe they want to decrease the amount of times they're, they're lashing out or they want to increase the amount of times that they walk away from an argument. Um, so... Or maybe they want them to be able to talk to them about their feelings. So maybe naming their feelings might be a huge therapeutic goal. And the reason that we have these therapeutic goals is to track, to see um, the child and to celebrate when we see these changes happening for the child. So the parents are involved and they they feel like they're part of the process. They know that, like, I'm not the expert on their child. They are the expert on their child. I'm just with them on this journey to support them um, and to... Um, give them a different perspective on their child's behaviour because maybe they don't know why their child is behaving in a certain way and if I can give them a bit of perspective on that then they're going to change the way they're behaving with their child as well and it just is easier to tolerate you know. So you're communicating with the parents then yeah. after every session is that how it works? So no sorry that well sometimes I do it just depends on what, what the parents want when we meet for the first time then I'll meet the child then for about six to eight weeks just depending the parent always knows that they can contact me and vice versa and then we'll meet again for a review session which is which is called that mm-hmm. parents come in on their own and we discuss the different changes that might be happening at home and then uh, we agree then on, on further therapy which usually happens to be honest six to eight sessions is not enough really uh, when you're dealing with you know um big traumas um, and then um, and then we'll just we just go from there. And how does the child eventually communicate the trauma to you? When do you know this is this is working? We're getting somewhere now. OK, so when a child starts to play. So if I was to tell you um, to try and imagine an event that happened to you and you were telling me or a friend, you know, when you start to tell somebody the traumatic thing, you start to feel it in your body as if it's happening, you start to feel the emotions. 
That is no different to a child coming into play therapy. As soon as they start playing out something that has happened to them, they start feeling the emotions right there and then. And we have this amazing opportunity in play therapy to start helping the child in real time while they're feeling the emotions, how to name their feelings. Because if a traumatic event happened to them, they were remote probably mostly disconnected. Mm-hmm. They've no idea what that feeling was. And that's where they're getting stuck. So they, in order to move past that trauma, they have to understand the feeling behind it and to be able to integrate that. Um, and also another thing that we... Um, Skills that we kind of um, enhance in children would be regulation skills as well. We're, you know, if you want to say teaching the child um, how to breathe and we're co-regulating with them as well as they're feeling the big emotions, as they're feeling these, you know, uh, really difficult feelings. And, you know, it mightn't seem like much, but these are monumental skills for children to have. Most adults can't even, you know, regulate their emotions and name their feelings, you know. So these are really, really fantastic big skills. skills. Yeah. And, and lifelong skills. Lifelong skills. Neve Mullins there, child psychotherapist and play therapist, who, along with Roisin Hickey, the principal of Our Lady of Victory's Boys National School and also chair of the Ballymont Schools Network, was talking about the benefits of play therapy for school children on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. You may remember back at the start of this episode, Ryan Tuberty made reference to 14-year-old Orla Kelly, who's been climbing Carantool like it's the escalator at the local supermarket. Well, not to be outdone, Ray Darcy spoke to Orla herself about her oversized achievement, completed yesterday, of climbing Ireland's highest mountain 100 times. Do you get a t-shirt or a crown or what do you get? Just a pat on the back. I get the novelty of it. Yeah, the novelty of it. Are you? Do you reckon you're the first 14-year-old to have completed 100 climbs of Karen Tuhill? Well, it's hard to know. You yeah. know, there's lots of other very well-able 14-year-olds out there, but it's, you know, you'd never know really. It's, you were sort of born to do it though, weren't you? Because <laughs> yeah. you were born into a climbing family. Go on. Yeah, so... um. Terry Climbing, my parents' business was set up before I was born, so, you know, the apple doesn't far fall from the tree in that case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what age were you when you climbed it first? Um, I was nine, almost ten. Right. Quite young. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and 100 yesterday. How did that feel? So you're, was, it, was it a lovely clear day down in Carantool? Um, It was okay, you know. Carantool weather it was actually very good. But yeah. We got views from the top, uh, but it was, you know, it was typical Carantool, kind of cloudy. Yeah, yeah. And 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 what did you do? Did you do a little jig? Did you, you know, did you make a speech? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> you know, we sat in a tent and hid out from the snow. Did you? Right, yeah. <laughs> and you and who? Your dad? Me and my dad. Yeah, yeah. What's his name? Kira. And, and did he did he congratulate you? Did he shake your hand? Did he pat you on the back? Oh, he, yeah, he did. He did, yeah. It's a, what an achievement, Orla. It's a, what are your memories about the first time you did it? Um, it was in a massive heat wave. Um, so it was absolutely melting up there. Um, I was with both my parents, yeah. so mom and dad. Um, it, I just We had a swim in the highest lake in Ireland, what can we look there? Um so yeah, it was a great memory. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a nice one to have there, isn't it? Uh, on the dark days, mm. yeah. Uh, and what's the appeal? I know you you sort of 
you you haven't known anything else because your both your parents do it. But uh, you could have said no. Yeah, well, um, it's great meeting new people. You know, mm. you meet different people every time, and also the scenery. Like when you get good views, it's just it's really rewarding. Mm. And, and why yesterday? Because I did notice that it was a Monday. It was a school day. You know. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, say nothing. My nobody's nobody's listening. A... Nobody's listening. Order, <laughs> <laughs> My school had a teacher training. Oh, did they? Right, oh, right, anyway. right, right. Yeah, yeah. And it just happened that the weather was good, uh, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Nice coincidence. Well, you know, Dad's very qualified in it, so yeah. he'd be really looking at the weather a lot. Yeah. So he'd know if there was a good spell coming, and the temperature was to stay low, so we knew there'd be snow up there. Um, we had a bit of an unexpected dump overnight though so there was a bit more than we expected but it's, you know we're always prepared for it uh, yeah so snow is nice to look at but probably not nice to climb in it's actually lovely is it you yeah. know it makes it a bit easier yeah right in my case anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> now you know, there's a bit of geopolitics going on here Orly in that Cork um, are claiming you as a Cork <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> yeah I had a feeling this would come up alright <laughs> right, right so um I'm from Kerry. Right. <laughs> um, living here for 10 years, but yeah, I was born in Cork. Ah, right. So you're a bit of both. That's fine, isn't it? Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Karen Toole is in Cork. <laughs> no. Is it? No. No, it's in Kerry. It's in Kerry. I'm thinking of, you know what I always mix it up? Isn't there a village called Carrick Toole, which is in yeah. Cork? Yes, which is up in the mountains as well. So Karen Toole's in Kerry. You were born in Cork. Cork are claiming you, but you're a Kerry woman. Yeah, definitely. That, that's it. That that's it. Now, what about you know? I know you're only fourteen. You're only in second year, so it's probably a silly question to ask about your plans when you become an adult. Uh, but would would sort of climbing be something you'd want to do as an adult, and maybe take on higher mountains? Yeah, definitely. Like I'll definitely keep up the family business, even if it was part time. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd love to do some climbing abroad in the Alps and we go to Scotland every year so that's something to look forward to as well and what about Everest um, but, oh ah uh, no 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 why not there's lots of other appealing mountains you know height isn't the main aim it's kind of difficult to really that I'm drawn to you, you'd be a good person now um, to answer this question because I've asked it of a lot of people who've climbed Mount Everest and I, I, I've yet to get a satisfactory answer why do you think people climb Mount Everest? Um, I think it's kind of just to say you did it. Right. But, you know, in my opinion, it's just a bit too busy. It's too busy, yeah. Yeah, and, and getting busier. Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely, yeah. But it is, it is an achievement and it's a small enough club, people who've managed to get to the top of uh, Mount Everest. So, so apart from that, is there anything else on your radar, you know, like that you think you might do when you leave school? Um, I'm not really sure yet. You know, I have a few years to go. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's a very sensible answer. Uh, so now you've a hundred done. Um, will there be a two hundredth celebration when we can talk to you then? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully in the next one or two years, maybe one is a bit of a push, but I'd say. By uh, two years, hopefully, we'll have it. And I believe you wanted to get up this morning and when you saw the weather and your dad was going up that you wanted to go up again. <laughs> yeah, anything to get out of school, I'd say. <laughs> right, yeah. I'd climb a mountain to get out of school. No, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. 14-year-old <laughs> Orla Kelly, who climbed Carantool for the 100th time yesterday, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon.
Ryan Tuberty had a quick chat with Tanya Tiernan about her son Jack at the end of his show this morning. How old is Jack? So he's now 10. He was six when we started doing what I'm about to tell you. Um, so he has um, some additional needs, um, in particular some sensory issues. He's would have been, particularly as a younger guy, we've done a lot of work to help him through this, but noise and crowds were a big issue for him. So quite often we wouldn't be able to go out as a family and definitely town was probably very overwhelming. But we were in town, we'd taken the dart to Peer Street and we're walking from Peer Street up to Nassau Street and he's a little bit overwhelmed, there's a lot of hustle and bustle and he looks up as we're walking kind of down um, Nassau Street and Suddenly, a smile on his face, and I said, oh, what's going on? He's like, oh, look up, look up, look up. And there's loads of geometric shapes. And wow. I said, what? what do you mean? And he said, look, there's a triangular prism, which I had to ask him what it was, and then it was a Toblerone. And he was seeing in all of the architecture of the buildings on those really gorgeous old buildings, um, all the shapes that he had seen in school, he was mad about maths. So he saw cylinders in the columns and cuboids and trapezoids and parallelograms all in all of the architecture and it's funny as you go along now like when we walk in you look up you see all these shapes that you never noticed before so for him that kind of became almost a mindful moment in that chaos and and it has further developed into his love of flags (laughs) so it's continued on and and from looking up he noticed all the flags and now can name Every single flag in the world. And, you know, I, very. I I would love to see um, Jack's book when he writes it of a, <laughs> a, a a a guide to Dublin through maths and shapes while looking. Yeah, up. what a great idea! What yeah. a great book! And all he needs is Absolutely. say twenty examples. Uh, yeah, and that's it. That's your illustration sorted out. He can he yeah. can he can say the book. He doesn't have to. Well, he's ten. He can write it if he wants, along with somebody else to help mm. him along if he needs it. But that is a beautiful book right there. It uh, actually writes yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reading and it. And what a lovely way to learn maths. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. And also for all of us, though. I mean, if you walk up O'Connell yeah. Street, like you say, or Nassau Street, whatever, you look up. Even that library I told you about. Um, it was now that you say it, I, it. It's all about shapes, and I think George in Dublin is 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 probably. You know, got these classical. Full of them, yeah. Yeah. All right, go and write the book with Jack, and I'll see you in, in a year. <laughs> Thanks, Tanya. Lovely talking to you. Thank you. Bye, Tanya. Tanya, what an intriguing. And again, try try it today if you're knocking around the place. Look at just look up. It's it's intriguing. That's Tanya Tiernan on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, talking about her son Jack. Not bad advice from that young man. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Dr. Rosemary Coleman spoke on this morning's programme about alopecia. Let's talk a little bit about what hair is, what its function is. It's an extension of our skin, is it not? Well, yes, it's a a proteinaceous keratin structure that uh, I think it's designed to keep us warm and beautiful. And alopecia then, let's get straight to the problems that people are facing. What is it and what causes it? So alopecia 
is a term that, that incites a lot of fear in people when they hear the word. And it simply means hair loss. So alopecia could be if one child pulls their, the other child's hair in the playground and they get a little ball patch. That's alopecia. Alopecia could also be when a, a person is going bald because their parent, their father, their parents or their mother was bald before them, etc., had hair loss. That's alopecia. So we have many, many causes of alopecia. The most common probably being genetic when it runs in families. And of course, it can run from the mother or the father to the daughter or the son. And another very common one, which we saw an awful lot of in the last two years, would be one called telogen effluvium. This would be most familiar to people after childbirth. Your hair gets lovely and thick in pregnancy when your body is busy growing a baby, so your hair rests, it doesn't shed. And then approximately 50 to 60 days after a severe trauma, be it a physical trauma like childbirth or an illness or a grievance, people often say, I'm suddenly shedding my hair and they see it all on the bathroom floor and it's very distressing. That's called telogen effluvium and we saw a lot of that with COVID. Okay. Not only because of the, the, the stress of COVID in society, but also the illness of COVID itself caused an awful lot of telogen effluvium. And the great thing is that it'll come back. And drug uh, causes as well, people who are having treatments for cancer. Drugs are very common, not only chemotherapy, which would be the one we'd all know, but a lot of immunosuppressive drugs or strong drugs. Again, they're rare causes of, uh, so for any drug, you might rarely see alopecia, but you'll remember the one you see. Other things like autoimmune disorders, thyroid disease, people with autoimmune disorders in the family are more likely to get something called alopecia areata, which is the one people often recognize as the little small pale circles that suddenly appear pale patches or inflammation things like lupus or like complainus and then of course we've infections more common in children would be fungal infections bacterial in adults and then rarer causes so it's terribly common Let's, but there's one yeah. important point Claire that I, I must emphasize even in a perfectly healthy person with a perfectly healthy head and no genetic history all of us naturally lose hair with age Wise words from Dr. Rosemary Coleman talking to Claire Byrne this morning about alopecia. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And I'll be here with another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Until then, thank you for listening and good luck.